So, Renato, Attorney General Merrick Garland has finally appointed a special counsel. Does that mean that Trump is going to finally be indicted? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I'm a senior lecturer at Yale University, where I teach national security law and a former FBI special agent. I'm also a legal and national security analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, well, I have to say, the special counsel, Jack Smith, it's very big news. It's interesting to me. It seemed... Not as big of news to people as the appointment of Robert Mueller. Like it's, it almost seemed anticlimactic in a way. I agree with you. I remember when Mueller was appointed, it was just stop the presses. I, my phone was blowing up. I think partly we've been special counseled out, maybe. Uh, that's kind of my impression. You know, we went through two years of Mueller. Frankly, I think that a lot of people were let down because they – had very high expectations, possibly beyond what he could have, what he was capable of delivering on generally, uh, which we can unpack. And then, of course, we had sort of a politicization of the special counsel with Barr appointing John Durham to investigate the investigators, which, you know, was like, wah, wah, um, ended up with nothing. And so I think here people just have a lot of associations with a special counsel, and I don't think they, they – maybe there's just a lack of understanding of what what the purpose is, but I agree. Yeah, I have to say the, uh, the last time around, like you said, it was earth-shattering. I still remember where I was when I found out that he had been appointed. It, it seemed like the biggest news, legal news ever, uh, as far as I could tell, uh, at least of my lifetime – um, this less so, but I think, you know, I actually think part of the, the difference is that, you know, people had, like you said, expectations regarding the last special counsel. I think there's this perception out there that it's super easy to convict Trump of crimes. Uh, he's been criming all over the place. Those, those crimes are super easy to prove. All you needed as a prosecutor who had, quote, guts and strength and, uh, you know, was a, was willing to do what was, you know, so obvious. Um, and, you know, Jack Smith is just the latest in the line of delay tactics by Merrick Garland. Uh, I don't view it that way at all. I mean, I actually, from my perspective, I think with the exception of the obstruction of justice, um, uh, you know, piece of the Mueller report, which... I don't know what happened to that. I mean, I actually, one of the biggest question marks I have for the Garland administration when people are critical of Garland, I'm not that, I'm not nearly as critical of Garland as most people, but one thing I do don't, I don't understand is, and I do question is what happened to some of that stuff? Like he never came yeah. out and said anything. Right. But other than that, like all this other stuff that has been, you know, people have been talking about on Twitter and in the news for years, like I don't see a lot of chargeable crimes there that are readily provable. Whereas now with this Mar-a-Lago stuff, like to me, that's just very, very easy to prove. Yeah. I think the reason that Mueller was earth shattering is, and I was trying to recollect while you were talking, I believe the last independent counsel before Mueller 
was Kenneth Starr, right? I think that was it. I don't recall George W. Bush. Um, I mean, Scooter Libby, I think there was a special counsel of some kind. But um, in terms of the president sort of in the crosshairs, that was the last one. And so, and that was, you know, crazy town, uh, the star investigation. So I think that's why it was earth shattering. But I also think, and there were some legal distinctions between the uh, rules that, or the framework that uh, Kenneth Starr was operating under versus Mueller, uh, because it changed. Uh, but also the special counsel regulations were kind of a poor fit for what Mueller was investigating. Um, as you mentioned, the obstruction of justice piece was straightforward criminal, right? That's that's a crime. But you know, the other piece of it was largely counterintelligence related, and it was sort of like what pieces of that counterintelligence investigation made their way into criminal territory, which isn't always the case. And so I think it, that was a little bit muddy, and I don't think the special counsel regulations were written with that possibility in mind that that kind of investigation could could be what was undertaken. And then I think Mueller, you know, he ended, going back to the wah-wah, um, you know, the, he, he was investigating a sitting president. And so there were those complications as well. Um, and I completely agree with you with Merrick Garland, uh, you know, the silence on the obstruction of justice, because just to, you know, rewind for a minute. The reason that Mueller declined to say whether he would indict or not indict uh, Trump was because he was a sitting president. But he kind of hinted that once Trump left office that, you know, that this could move forward. And I think there was quite a lot of evidence that was presented in his report. And look, there may be re good reasons for Mueller, for Garland to not pursue that. But I do think he owed the American people some kind of statement or explanation for that because it's just kind of hanging in the breeze now. I mean, it's now the statute of limitations has passed, but it was a disappointment. Yeah, I, I think beyond beyond the um, that disappointment, I, I think in general, I mean, there's a lot of politicization of the DOJ during the Trump administration. And there just hasn't been a lot of active reckoning by the Justice Department during Garland's watch, which I find problematic. I mean, we have a DOJ that appears to have been used in multiple different ways for political ends, or at least attempted to have been used. In, and in certain circumstances, it really appears to have been influenced for political reasons. And there's this almost like, let's pretend it didn't happen. Like, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about, you know, what happened uh, during the, that that four-year period. I, I find that problematic. But, you know, to get to the, I think uh, you've made so many good points, but to get to another, I think, really important point you made, Asha, I, I you know, the counterintelligence piece of the Mueller investigation, I think it continues to be greatly misunderstood. I mean, I credit you to helping me understand that. Uh, quite a bit. And there was this, this sense, I think Trump used that to his advantage. And there, I mean, there's a sense in the media that collusion, whatever that was, was, which is essentially, I, I best, I guess, a counterintelligence term, certainly not a criminal law term, was going to get proven by Mueller. And that was going to be the end result of the Mueller report. And Mueller didn't know what to make of that. I mean, he basically said, well, there's no evidence of a criminal conspiracy, which is like, almost impossible to prove in that context like the idea that you would prove that trump was in a criminal conspiracy had a kind of more 
straightforward agreement with a foreign power and intelligence service. That's not how they they operate. Yeah, exactly. And like that they would have an agreement to break U.S. law like, hey, like they're going to get together and say, like, would you please hack this server? Like we're going to have some like back and forth discussing this. Like like you said, I mean, the idea that the Russian government was going to do that in a, with a presidential candidate, U.S. presidential candidate in a way that wasn't didn't have some deniability. It was just like crazy. So I, I always was very skeptical that anything would come of that. And I wasn't surprised by the result, but most people seem to be. And I think that was just like partly a media creation and partly because, as you point out, there wasn't, I think, a care. There was beyond the statute being not a good fit, or the statute, excuse me, the regulations not being a good fit. I don't really feel like there was any clear statement um, regarding that. Like there, there was not clear, right, to the public in any way that that's what was going on. Yeah. And I think the media also, I mean, they've just, you know this better than anyone, Renato, is the, the FBI gets involved in anything and they immediately want to go to prosecution. What What is what is the person going to be charged with? And you're like, wait, we're just at the very beginning. We don't even know what is, you know, what's been gathered. And in a in a counterintelligence investigation, they might not be charged with anything. Most people aren't in a counterintelligence investigation. These are highly classified. They use sensitive sources and methods. Many people have diplomatic immunity. I mean, there's a number of reasons that those cases don't see the inside of a courtroom. And I just, I was blue in the face from trying to explain that. Um, but, you know, that's just the framing of our media is, uh, you know, a criminal law framework. But which makes, you know, maybe the current investigations a little bit more apropos because those are uh, criminal investigations. So we talked a little bit about, well, we talked a little bit about the differences So um, between Mueller and uh, the current uh, Jack Smith. So I, maybe you can take it from there on what you think. Yeah, I, I, from my perspective, um, you know, I, I've always said from the beginning that I thought appointment of a special counsel is a good idea. I wrote a column in November 2020, like days after the election, well before January 6th, saying a special counsel should just be appointed for everything that had happened during the Trump presidency. So we would have a because one thing I love about the special counsel regs, I know you and I have discussed this in the past, Tasha, is there's a transparency element to it, right? I mean, in other words, there's a report that's prepared, which the AG can make public, as happened last time. And if the AG doesn't agree with something that the special counsel recommends, they have to tell Congress. Like, it's way more transparency than we usually get. Uh, and and I, so I kind of like that. And I thought for uh, what had happened in the Trump era, having somebody who, like a Jack Smith who no one had ever heard of. I mean, I, I know lawyers had heard of him maybe, but the public hadn't heard of him. He's not known to the to the media or anyone like that, uh, kind of an unknown figure. That's exactly the sort of person who should be making these judgment calls and have Garland defer to that person's judgment. So I, I really like the idea. I continue to, but I have to, you know, I have to say that, you know, part of the difference here, and this is something we haven't talked yet about on this podcast, is that I really am convinced that for the first time that I've, since since Trump was elected uh, in 2016, that there are likely criminal charges of Donald Trump. I mean, I never thought that was going to happen um, until recently, but the Mar-a-Lago um, documents case is so straightforward in part because the 
uh, DOJ and FARA went out of their way to bend over backwards to be accommodating to Trump. They've actually created a situation and Trump served up to the DOJ, I'd say, charges that are very easy to prove. Yeah. And let's talk about the appointment letter. So really quickly, I I think it's worth reviewing the grounds for appointing a special counsel. Um, The special counsel regulations uh, allow for the appointment of a special counsel when there is a conflict of interest in an investigation involving the Justice Department or other extraordinary circumstances, and it would be in the public interest. Um, And, you know, I don't know whether Garland was invoking the conflict of interest or extraordinary circumstances. I think both are present here. I mean, I think that, you know, when, when you're investigating a potential candidate for president who will be running against the person who appointed you, um, you know, look, that I think that creates the perception of uh, partisanship, even if it's not there. I don't think it's there with Merrick Garland, but I can see how people would see that. And I think if the situation, you know, if we were back in the Trump administration and Bill Barr had been investigating Joe Biden um, leading up to <laughs> the election, I think we'd feel the same way. So um, that's there. Obviously, January 6th, for sure, is an extraordinary circumstance. Um, and I think here there is a public interest Um because, of, you know, and there's transparency. This, these are, this is a very big event that happened. Um, you know, also the Mar-a-Lago thing and, and a public just deserve to know. Um, so I will say the appointment letter is really interesting because it doesn't mention Trump specifically at all. Um, it has two sections, one of which authorizes the special counsel to investigate all like any like anything arising out of the events of January 6th excluding cases that are already pending like prosecutions that are already pending or investigations involving people who were physically present so it seems like those have been you know are going to be remain with the regular uh, justice department um and then there's the second part which you know it's very cleverly worded it's like the case arising from and they cite to this uh lawsuit that Trump has filed in Florida which is the Mar-a-Lago case um and then both of those sections allow for an investigation of obstruction of justice of those investigations in other words if either of those investigations are obstructed in any way then those also fall under the purview of the special counsel um, and so, uh, your your point, your view, Renato, is that the second one, the Mar-a-Lago one, is the more straightforward one. Uh, I agree with you. Um, what do we think about the broad mandate of that first one? So, uh, a couple of things. I mean, first, uh, on the first one, I, basically, what they're trying to exclude. I mean, just to help people make sense of that. Uh, there are, I think, over 800 cases that have been brought by the uh, by my former law school classmate. He was uh, also went to Yale Law School with us, Matthew Graves, the U.S. Attorney in the District of Columbia. Him and his team, uh, they brought like 800 cases, a bunch, all the sort of uh, you know, atta- uh, foot soldiers, you know, assailants, whatever you want to call them, insurrectionists, rabble, whatever uh, people attack the Capitol. Um, I don't think that that administrative burden is meant to be put on Mr. Smith. So that that was basically meant to carve out all of that stuff and keep that with a very large team that has been assembled. I think they've hired a lot of temporary prosecutors and other things to just handle and staff all of those cases. So 
um, that's out. But I think, re, you know, regarding the January 6th case more generally, I mean, what they're trying to do, they try to find, like you said, a cleverly worded way to basically say all the like high level organizer types, the, you know, and all the others like Clark Eastman, um, uh, you know, anybody involved with the or like the fake elector scheme, anyone involved in that. Um, so, you know, I think that's what it's meant to capture. Um, I have to say I'm I'm much more um, bearish about uh, any potential Trump indictment coming out of that uh, particular piece of it. I mean, I could definitely see an indictment of someone like, uh, Je uh, you know, Jeffrey Clark, um, because he was trying to get the department to make false statements in the course of a federal proceeding. So that just strikes me as like very straightforward and easy to prosecute. Um, you know, Eastman and the and all of this fake elector stuff. Yeah, I could see that because those are false statements that they were trying to get submitted to the Senate. I'm not really sure how Trump gets caught up in all of that. Like, could there be an incitement charge and stuff? Yeah, sure. But it's just way harder to charge than just like, do you did you willfully retain classified documents? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like to say that the Mar-a-Lago case is uh, res ipsa loquitur, um, as they say in the law, the thing speaks for itself. Like they were document that he didn't own that they found on his property. It's hard to get around that. And he sort of uh, admitted to that now trying to wrangle, create other legal theories to justify them being there. Um, but yeah, I think the other piece is that the Mar-a-Lago case is really just about Trump and his actions, whereas the January 6th case involves, it, you know, conspiracies, right? So it involves on knowing what we, we talked just now about agreements, like what was being said and agreed to and understood and what was the motive, all these things that I think are farther below the surface and is not a, something that just obviously speaks for itself. You need a lot more digging to do. I, I would also just say, Asha, a different distinction too that I would draw between the two is January 6th is more like these white collar cases. And that's really what um, Mueller was investigating too, that uh, where the, the criminality is, you know, is uh, focused on the state of mind of the defendant. In other words, did the person have, let's say in a fraud case, the intent to defraud, do they have the intent to obstruct, you know, in a conspiracy case, what was there an agreement to break the law? You know, that's what makes those cases difficult, right? Do you have the intent to defraud the United States? Do you have a conspiracy to, you know, obstruct a, or, de, you know, to uh, defeat a federal proceeding, whatever it might be? Those are more complicated things to prove. It's much more straightforward. The docs case, the documents case is much more like a like drug cases like that. I used to when I was a junior prosecutor, it's like, OK, we've got our, you know, we, we see legal 20, possession or whatever. Yeah, it was like, yeah, 20 key, you got 20 kilos of cocaine. Like, OK, it is what it is. Like you've got the cocaine. So you could say it's powdered sugar or something. But like unless you can try to convince you I had no idea that, you know, you had 20 kilos of cocaine in your trunk, like you're guilty. Like that's it. Like, and so the reality is, you know, those cases are just straightforward and it's the same thing here, right? If you have like top secret documents in your basement, like you're guilty. And so that's, that's the reality of, of that for president, former president Trump. But it's also, you know, I think the what, what goes towards is you were suggesting a moment ago, the ease of prosecution. Yeah. Um, and let's talk quickly about the delay portion of this, because I think um, there is some question about whether this, this delays the investigation. And here's my impression. Um, I think this actually has the potential to speed up the investigation, because as you noted right now, you know, the Department of Justice is 
essentially overloaded. Um, this is like the largest investigation, I think, in the Department of Justice history. Um, you know, they have like a thousand people that they're looking at. Um, and then you have all these high level people. So just to, to take those out and sever that and have a dedicated team to looking at it, to me, actually seems like it's going to be more efficient. I think there'll be a an initial period where those people have to get up to speed, but presumably that's really going to be Jack Smith because I suspect that he's going to bring over the investigators and prosecutors who have been working on this already. And I was on um, a program with Jill Wine-Banks the other night. Uh, she was a prosecutor in Watergate, and she said that, you know, when Nixon fired uh the AG and um, the special prosecutor was brought in. She said, you know, they really didn't miss a beat. That he got up to speed. I think it was Jaworski uh, got up to speed and they moved forward. So I personally don't see a significant delay. And I think this could actually be more efficient. And I think picking people who are going to be the the hungry go-getters of the prosecutorial and investigatorial team to me is a good thing, especially since I think there are some troubling signs, at least on the FBI side, that there is resistance in some places to moving forward on Trump. I say get them out of there, you know what I mean, and have this be an independent uh, investigation, potential prosecution with a buffer from all these other elements. Yeah, I, I also don't see any slowdown here. If anything, I think it's relatively neutral. I mean, the reality is that there's an ongoing investigation and Mr. Smith is walking into um, an investigation where there's already a team of FBI agents looking at this. There are already all sorts of DOJ attorneys who are working on the case, prosecutors. There's somebody from the Solicitor General's office who has been consulted, who's involved. Um, There's a whole bunch of national security attorneys who are involved. He, there's a whole bunch of people that he's probably just going to take and put them into his office. And it really reminds me of the Manafort case where, you know, that was one of many different matters that was assigned to Mueller. Like Mueller not only took over this counterintelligence investigation, he, there was this obstruction of justice case, which became greater as time went on because Trump kept trying to obstruct his investigation. But then there was also just this stuff regarding Paul Manafort that they threw in there. That was just like an ongoing investigation of fraud fraud uh, stuff. And they basically just kept the same team. You know, he brought in some additional people, but it was basically I'm um, just taking that work and running with it. And I think the first indictment was five months after Mueller was appointed. Here, it may be even faster in, if Smith doesn't bring in a lot of other people. I mean, I think that Mueller staffed up an entire office in part because, you know, what he was actually doing was more wide ranging than that. Um, but I think here, you know, if I was Smith, I would keep the same team. Maybe you could hire one or two other people to advise you. But ultimately, to me, this is like the person at the top who's making decisions, who's changing. And, and I don't really think it changes much. In other words, you know, the people who actually do the work on investigations, and you know this, Asha, are whether they're FBI agents like you were or a former when I was a federal prosecutor, they're the ones doing all the hard work day to day. There are people who come out who get appointed by the president who may give press conferences at the end. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they're not in there like, you know, looking at the evidence and writing up indictments and stuff. Right. right. And so, like, if that's, you know, at the end of the day, you know, n neither Merrick Garland nor da Jack Smith is going to be like rolling up their sleeves or conducting witness interviews. 
they're going to be the ones making final decisions. And from, from that perspective, right. Strategic. Yeah. Decisions. And from that perspective, Jack Smith's going to have way more time in his hands to be like sitting there talking to these people and getting his hands dirty and really getting into the evidence. Like then Merrick Garland has got a humongous department to oversee. Yeah. And I'll just add one last note uh, for the segment is for the people who I think have been disappointed in Garland, um, I'm not really sure why they're also now disappointed that he appointed special counsel, because by all accounts, as far as I can tell, Jack Smith is more aggressive than Garland. I mean, he's apparently a pretty aggressive prosecutor. So if if you've been kind of if you feel that Garland's been too slow or too timid, he's essentially handing over power to make a lot of those big decisions to someone who, you know, is is willing to move uh more forcefully as far as i as far as i can tell you stole my point Ash. i was going to say that in the next segment great i i couldn't agree more all right let's talk a little bit more about it from a different angle in just a minute So, Asha, you just said a minute ago, you know, there's all these people who've been disappointed in Garland. I, I know there's one former federal prosecutor who's been like chanting like fire Garland all the time on Twitter. And yet that same person and a lot of others are attacking special counsel Smith as saying that Garland should have appointed Smith. I totally do not understand if you want to fire Garland and you think he's weak and you think he's ineffective why you would be opposed to replacing Garland for this investigation with some hard driving prosecutor. I just don't get that at all. It's internally inconsistent to me. Makes no sense. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense either. And I think for a number of other reasons, um, in the criticisms don't make sense. You know, they, the, if you think that uh, Garland has been slow or had, you know, especially if you're worried about the fact that he never explained why he didn't go after Trump for obstruction, as you noted earlier, Renato, the special counsel regulations are going to require accountability for the ultimate decisions that are made in a way that um, will be produced in a report and to the extent that there is a disagreement. So let's say Jack Smith says, I'm ready to indict Trump and Garland, who gets to approve or who, you know, he he can approve or deny those big prosecutorial decisions get some kind of cold feet and is like, no, I I don't want you to do that. That disagreement has to be documented. Garland would be required to lay out his reasons for denying that request from the special counsel and that those reasons and that decision has to be reported to both uh, the chairs and ranking members of the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, which also means, by the way, that that's going to go to the public. Um, and so there's more, you know, whereas in a regular Justice Department investigation, we just never know. It would be like the obstruction of justice stuff. Like, we don't know what happened behind the scenes. Like, I'm, And so I would think that you would want Garland to have more accountability. And I'm with you. I, I was actually advocating for Garland to appoint a special counsel right after he was confirmed, frankly, because I it just seemed to me to be not a good look for him to be investigating, but I think he might not have been because I don't think he was investigating Trump then. I think they were looking at the foot soldiers and like, do, 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 let's just get past this, you know, bygones. And until the January 6th committee really ramped up. 
Yeah, you know, I have to say, I'm I've, I'm always like suspicious of narratives like that that seem simplistic. But in this particular case, it really seemed to be that there there was a lot of reporting that made it seem like nothing was really happening that much in terms of higher level investigation or prosecution on January sixth, at least, until that committee um, launched. And you know, they for example, there were these press reports that the justice department was surprised by Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, for example, like why would the FBI be surprised about that? Like it's not like that complicated to interview the people who are involved. Very, very weird. But I will just say, I mean, regarding the special counsel stuff, I mean, there was a whole uproar. Asha, I'm sure you saw the same thing I did of all sorts of before, you know, there's there was even before the appointment, right? There was some reporting by CNN and I think by New York Times that maybe Garland would appoint a special counsel. And there was like a raft of op-eds and, you know, hand-wringing about how horrible this was and how this was going to delay everything. And, you know, I think partly, I, you know, it's very easy to say things that the public wants to hear that fits a kind of existing prejudice out there. And I think there was this prejudice out there, I wouldn't say or prejudice, whatever, this perception out there that special counsel slow things down. And so it was an easy hook to publish stuff and say stuff. But I didn't really see any basis in reality. And one thing I find hilarious is that suddenly now all the same people who last week were publishing op-eds saying like, oh my God, special counsel is going to slow things down. It's so unnecessary are now all suddenly coming around to the idea like two days, three days, four days after Smith is appointed. Oh, like, well, Jack Smith is super great. And I'm not saying in this circumstance, it's like bending over backwards and twisting themselves into knots to say that why they have a totally different view than they had one week ago. It's really bizarre. Yeah. And the evidence is the evidence, right? I mean, and he's not starting from scratch. I think it's really important for our listeners to understand that. And because I think that that is also a misperception that somehow this, we bring in a special counsel and it's a team of people who have no idea what's going on and have to like start interviewing people from the, you know, no, they're picking up something that's already there. I will say that now in retrospect, um, and this is just to tie this back to the Mueller thing, maybe, and bring it full circle, you know, I think. I'm glad in a way that Garland did not appoint a special counsel immediately after he came in, because um, one thing that both the January 6th committee and, you know, the search on Mar-a-Lago has done is it's made it clear in a very public way that there is adequate predicate for these investigations, um, a predicate in in the FBI Attorney General guidelines is um, are articulable facts that um, suggest that a potential violation of federal law has occurred. And that's clearly the case. There is a reason to be investigating these. And I think what happened with the Mueller case is that partly because this originated as a counterintelligence investigation, I think it was much easier for Trump and his cronies to really spin this as a witch hunt, you know, and in fact, Ultimately, what they really went after and tried to discredit was the predicate of that investigation, which was actually intelligence by one of our Five Eyes allies uh, that, you know, Russia might be trying to interfere. Um, but, you know, there, there was just more uh, vacuum because of a lot of the secrecy of the nature of that investigation that allowed for spin in a way that now with everything we know already from the January 6th hearings and from the Mar-a-Lago case and the filings that Trump's lawyers have done in the lawsuit, the civil suit, 
um, there's no question that this is a valid investigation, whatever comes of it in the end. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'll say also to come full circle on something that you alluded to, I, I really think that we now have a very different person who's making the decisions here. I mean, one, one I think, valid, um, I wouldn't say criticism, but concern about Merrick Garland is just he is somebody who has been a federal judge for 22 years. I mean, he's in terms of his temperament, he's somebody yeah. who spent 22 years of his life, which is a long time, looking at both sides, trying to be fair-minded, being careful, thoughtful, exercising restraint. Like Those are all the qualities that I would expect a federal judge to have. Those are very different than the qualities that a prosecutor has. And, and while certainly I do think restraint and good judgment are important parts of being a federal prosecutor, when you're a prosecutor, you, frankly, moving quickly is is a strength is a prosecutor because the faster you move, you can move before evidence goes away, before um, the you know there's an opportunity to obstruct or delay your investigation. Um, you know, actually, you know, being aggressive can at times be a strength of being a prosecutor and part of what you're taught as well. I mean, I will just say. I, after nine years as a federal prosecutor, I became a different person. You, you are shaped by your experiences. And in Jack Smith, we have somebody who spent way longer than I did as a federal prosecutor. He didn't spend nine and a half years or whatever. He spent you know, his entire life basically prosecuting at all sorts of different levels. So you're getting somebody who has a prosecutorial mindset. And so from my perspective, um, I think you're more likely to get someone here who is going to be focused on kind of the nuts and bolts of whether or not you can prove a case in court rather than very focused on potentially uh, other types of concerns. Um, and for better or for worse, I mean, there's you could make arguments both ways, but the, the irony is I think the people who are the most concerned about the appointment um, ironically should be the happiest about it because the people who are most concerned are people who are convinced that this is somehow going to uh, delay things or, or or have more restraint. And I don't really see uh, a career prosecutor like Jack Smith being a restraint type. I agree. I, I once referred to Merrick Garland on TV as the Jimmy Carter of attorneys general, and people got really, really bad at me. Um, but I think it's kind of, you know, it is that the thoughtful temperament. And, and I think like, the, the idea that we'll look back and be really glad that he had that level head and, um, you know, a deliberate attitude in this very tumultuous time. But I think it can be very frustrating as you're living through it. Yeah. I Look, now, especially now, since I've been a defense attorney for the last several years, I actually appreciate prosecutors who have restraint. I've actually seen some prosecutors do some awful things uh, and exercise really bad judgment. So I think there's something to be said for restraint in prosecutors. But if uh, unless you're in uh, camp restraint, uh, you probably uh, should be applauding Merrick Garland handing this one off. So before we go, uh, we wanted to have a, a pet-oriented segment. And I think what we learned about that is it's complicated <laughs> to have pets involved in your podcast. Although you've done an amazing job with Pancake. What is that contraption that you have? It is. Oh, my God. He's like desperately trying to hold on to this. Um, uh, it's a feather on a stick. That's all it takes to get a cat interested in a podcast. What it takes from Mr. Henry is some some Cheerios, which I have in my hand. It took this is 
This has been trial and error. Can, can we get up here, sir? Oh, you know, I've taught Mr. Henry to uh, my dog to sit to sit when I give him treats. So maybe I'll have to put some up on my lap for him to get. Let's see if, if that works. Okay, they're right here. Here, they're right here, my friend. Can you come up and get them? Oh my goodness, he is camera shy. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, I feel like we owe it to our viewers because we kind of teased the pet situation. Um, we got to bring them up here, but it is challenging. Challenging to get them in the video. Well, let me just say, you know, Henry. The reason Henry gets, the reason that Jen, that Henry gets Cheerios is he has. He, Henry has a liver, very serious liver condition, actually. Aww. So he his liver is not developed properly, so he can't process protein um, the way that ordinary dogs can. And so he has to have very limited amounts of protein and then medicine that flushes it out of him quickly because if it if he tries to process it, it will create toxins. And so he gets things like Cheerios, he gets pumpkin, um, and cucumbers and my wife sell me cucumbers uh, carrots uh and all sorts of other things um that are his treats so that's what he gets he gets stuff like that we he gets these certain chews that he gets that are also very make him very happy as well so he's he's yeah. a very special dog and and so how is pancake doing is pancake like super adjusted i mean i still noticed pancake yeah. in the background while we were recording yeah, Pancake is very happy, uh, and he actually starred in my first Steam Mop video um, on Whoa. Instagram. Yeah, if you watch it, he's there. Um, in fact, at some point, I had to remove him because I was, you know, I mean, steam. It's very hot steam, so I had to, like, sequester him. He, it's not exactly the product that you want your pet helping you with, but um, but he's good. I can't give him treats, though, because he has really bad diarrhea. Oh no! Well, so this is the chew that that Henry loves. This is his favorite. Oh, he's literally ready to jump on my desk to get the chew. Oh, it's good. That, Let's see This him. is Let's that high him. quality. But he usually knows that I don't like him to jump. Uh, to oh, there we go. <laughs> I think I don't know if viewers saw that, but in any event, that that is that is Henry and his chews. Um, but yes, it is Henry is there when you. My dog is like there when you want, always around usually. Um, but he's also more very vocal. Um, and so I'm actually, have to mute the podcast quite a bit, uh, when I'm not talking because he's got a lot to say. Oh, and here's princess Dolly. Um, so Dolly, Dolly hurt her wing when she was a little chick. And so she can't fly. And so she sits on my shoulder all the time, uh, just like that. So is it going to traumatize her to see Chuckley attacking what he thinks is a bird? So she's actually like very stoic when it comes to this stuff. Like she's got a dog around her that's like constantly running around attacking stuff. And she just sits. She likes to sit on top of her cage as opposed to sitting inside of her cage. So she'll just sit on top of her cage and there's a puppy that's running around attacking things. And she just sort of sits and watches him. And uh i think she's the same way about look at look how peaceful she is she's just like okay i'm just i'm just taking this all in she's very happy because she likes being on top of me because i'm tall so then this way it's like a high perch so we're fine yeah that's so awesome. she's she's very she's she's very satisfied 
so she grinds her beak when she's satisfied, so I can hear the little grinding, so I know that she's she's happy. So cute. So I well, feel like we've delivered on some of the pet content. I, I think so. And maybe next time we need some steam map content because I've got okay. a lot of questions. After watching the video, I have a lot of questions about steam maps. Okay, we'll do it. Thank you.